0: you really don't know Fraser it's one of those like shows that I never never like watched
1: no. I know there's like Niles
0: Niles and da- is it Daphne that's about and there's a the dog there's the a yeah. dog and yeah and he's a yeah that's, that's, I'm
1: straining I'm up my knowledge of Fraser so the was the first question Welcome to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. Uh, This is Joe or Steamtans on Twitter. Uh, I've been left in charge for some reason this week. Um, It's not a normal episode this week as Jasper and Jamie and the others are all away or busy. But don't forget, instead I'm joined by Matthew Lawrence, who is the Director of Commonwealth. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks very much for having me.
1: To get started, would you be able to sort of um, explain to any listeners who don't know, what is Commonwealth?
0: Sure. So Commonwealth is a new organisation. It's sort of launched publicly around about late April. And its basic point is that we're facing a series of like deep and interconnected crises that are sort of getting worse over time as they intersect environmental, social, economic. And that systems crisis will require a sort of a systemic response. And if we want a systems response, we need to go to the root of how our economy is organised and for whom. And fundamental to that is sort of property relations: who owns what, how control power flows through society, how wealth, income then flows off the back of patterns of ownership control. And so the point of Commonwealth Search, we need a sort of deep reorganisation of our economy towards more purposeful, equitable, so egalitarian, sustainable forms of life and living, and that will require new models of ownership at its heart. So our our sort of purpose is to design ownership models for a sustainable and democratic economy, uh, looking at some of the sort of big picture areas, whether it's land, data and digital technologies, social commons, uh, sort of business ownership, and a whole, whole range of areas.
1: Fantastic. I think you touched upon this a little bit in that answer, actually. But um, So why does ownership matter so much?
0: Yeah, so mean, ownership, historically, so property relations, how bundles of rights, of rights to use, rights to income from use, rights to glued these whole things that's sort of bundled up in property rights as such and then ownership is sort of you know, the overarching sense of that and why it matters is a number of reasons i guess it sort of it condenses sort of power and decision making in the economy so sort of owners get to decide and sort of you know there is a sort of bias towards their interests they are privileged within how we order our economy today typically so it's sort of shareholder sort of privilege in terms of how major companies are run you know think of the hierarchy within the firm towards sort of owners and managers often who are the, sort of one and the same sort of people. I think ownership matters because it consolidates very often into social and political power, which then sort of re-organizes sort of, itself down generations, so sort of how things are owned, who owns them, fundamentally matters in terms of social, economic uh, sort of inequalities and sort of the forms of, sort of social life we have. It matters in terms of sort of ecological crisis. So clearly a model of of very extractive capitalism, sort of, you know, with some very colonial circuits of accumulation in terms of wealth extracted, reefs extracted from the global south. Now, a lot of that is rooted in the private power that owners, private owners that capital has, sort of the sovereign rights of capital has within our economy today and that right to decide, that right to sort of reap the lion's share of the benefits relative to sort of non-owners, which is in many cases the majority. And the key point here is that actually sort of ownership rights, property rights, with the distribution of property is not something it's not like manna from heaven, it's not sort of fallen down and sort of apolitical beyond the reach of intervention, it very much flows from the types of politics, the types of decision makings, the types of collective power we can organize behind those politics, in terms of shaping institutions, shaping the distribution of ownership, that then flows from that, whether that's the design of the firm, whether that's how things like pensions, which in some ways, it's an indirect claim that some of us have on ownership, but it's so indirect that in some ways, it doesn't get to real forms of ownership. You know, can we redesign pensions? And then I think much more radically, interestingly, to begin to rethink a new era of commoning of data, of land, of social and communal care, of environmental rights, you know, can we be much more pluralistic, and scale a new architecture of democratic ownership, that is both pluralistic in the type of models we have, but then also pluralistic in terms of broadening out very substantially, democratising to making sure everyone has a stake in the same society.
1: I've uh, read stuff that you've written before where you talked about how this sort of transform, transformation in ownership that you're talking about has sort of happened twice before. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, of course. So one of the sort of arguments around Commonwealth in general and sort of structural capacity of ownership to shift how the economy operates for people and force sort of the planet is found in sort of past sort of moments and so i think if you look to history in the uk we've had two major shifts in sort of the lifetime of people sort of alive today that's sort of relatively old now some of these people but we've had two big shifts in how we organize our economy the first was obviously sort of that post war moment, the consolidation of the welfare state, the extension of public ownership of the commanding heights of the economy, the sort of nationalization of healthcare provision, et cetera, et cetera. And fundamentally, that sort of post war Keynesian consensus rested on those extensions, those new forms of public ownership. Now, those forms of ownership were sort of, they had lots of problems. In some ways, they're far too centralized. They weren't democratic enough. They didn't actually change the structure of feeling of everyday life, which I think is what we're aiming for in sort of the time of work Commonwealth is doing. But clearly, that was fundamental to reshaping and undergirding a new social sentiment in the post-war era. And then clearly, conversely, and it's opposite in some ways, it's opposite. The Thatcherite neoliberal sort of turn in the late 70s through most, obviously in the 80s, then obviously consolidated thereon. Was fundamentally, in some ways, about privatisation, about the extension of shareholder privacy, around sort of the extension of rights of capital relative to labour, and sort of insulation of democracy and the rights of democracy to order the economy. And absolutely, was you know, if you look at what was sort of the institutional and political interventions that basically undid the post-war consensus and sort of ushered it in the new era we, we still live in today. Well, it was privatisation. It was sort of right to buy. It was the privatisation of utilities. It was the privatization of public land. It was the taking of natural resources from North Sea oil and so that it's enclosure and extraction for private gain rather than sort of a social welfare model like in Norway, for example. So, you know, fundamentally it's sort of both the
1: rewiring
0: of how the economy operated for home in the 1980s and onwards and sort of building up a political constituencies that had a sort of material stake in a new economic order. They were both in those both two examples fundamentally linked to ownership, who owned what, how, over what time horizons, and whose interests, who had a stake in a state, who had a voice in sort of the exercise of ownership and control rights that flow from from arrangements of property. And as we look at our own sort of economy that just clearly isn't working for the majority of people, when you look at sort of flatlining wages, when you look at sort of inequality, when you look at insecurity, when you look at sort of most obviously and sort of urgently sort of in the existential level, the overarching environmental crisis is intimately and in fact not intimately is driven by economic inequalities and sort of how we sort of use and interact with nature and organize nature clearly we absolutely need a shift on an equivalent scale to sort of the post-war moment and the sort, of, sort of neoliberal term albeit in a new direction in a direction in which the economy is organized towards sustainability towards democracy towards equality by design it's sort of hardwired into its operation and to get that you fundamentally we argue need to look at how property is organised, how is it controlled, who has its use, who benefits from it, and that requires democratizing and transforming ownership.
1: And if we're thinking about examples of where that kind of democratic ownership uh, already exists or or could exist, where where's where's is it working? Where does it work? Um, what should we be? been looking to a sort of the examples that already exist.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's, there's three points. One is of um, British exceptionalism. Um, the Two is um, the sort of ecology, the rich ecology of actual examples of the actually existing democratic ownership. And the third point is of the type of direction we want to move towards. So the first point is sort of the scale of privatisation, these sort of monocultural um, Dominance of private forms of ownership, private forms of economic power organizing economy, is unusual in the UK. So the UK, for example, it's not very well known, but we actually were led the world, which is sort of in some ways not something we wanted to lead the world in, but we led the world on the scale of privatization throughout the 80s and the 90s, far more than, say, the United States and certainly more than Europe in terms of the scale of which key sort of utilities, etc., were turned over to um sort of private hands for private sort of, you know, sort of mo- private motives and how they'll run uh, under what sort of conditions. So I think the first thing is you could just simply look to you know, Europe and the large parts of America, where sort of large parts of things that are privatized here have different, very different ownership models and often deliver much better outcomes for people, for environment, for sort of society. The second thing is that, you know, even in the UK though, we do have a much more pluralistic ecology, despite that dominance of, you know, particular models of ownership, we have a much more pluralistic Range of ownership models than you would imagine. So, you know, A, let's take those utility questions. So, actually, if you look at Scotland and Wales, where some of these powers are devolved, you actually have some sort of publicly owned utilities around things like sort of water, around sort of some sort of the railways, et etc. et cetera. And what you see there is often like much cheaper bills, also cheaper bills, better service, less money being extracted out to external shareholders, much more money being invested into the actual basic services, delivering better outcomes for ordinary people. So, you can look to sort of Know, other, sort of, some of the nations of the UK as a whole to say, actually, this, can exi- this is existing in the UK. And then, obviously, you know, there's a whole range of, sort of models that I think you'd obviously want to scale up and sort of you know, embroidery of democratic ownership. So you can look at social enterprise, which has got sort of, you know, millions of people who now work in social enterprise, which is the forms of enterprise which are explicitly constituted to sort of reinvest any surplus generated by enterprise in sort of social solutions, in sort of egalitarian forms of you know, creative enterprise. You can look to things like, you know, it's an obvious one, but clearly the John Lewis sort of model, you know, it's, it's not perfect. There's you know, still things I think that, you know, you wouldn't say, well, that's jobs done if all major companies were like John Lewis. But I think in terms of, sort of the level of sort of equity within the company, the sense of purpose, etc., cetera, clearly that's a sort of successful model. And there's a whole host of, sort of employee-owned businesses very successful cooperatives, from play, you know, from really sort of brilliant micro sort of cooperatives up upwards. So you've got you know from people like Blake House, which is a brilliant sort of cooperative filmmaking studio, through sort of, um, sort of like sort of Subsuma Foods, which is a much like larger scale sort of it's the largest sort of food uh, cooperative in the UK. Um, you, you know, so if you've got. A whole host of really interesting cooperatives working in the digital space, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think it's actually like a really rich sort of array of examples we could point to on the ground. And I think the challenge then for the third part of that answer would be the challenge is not to say there is only one model that works in every place, in every situation, in every sector. Rather, it's to try and sort of tease out through place based practice, through sort of listening to the voices of users, workers, communities, what are the types of outcomes we want. What are the types of forms that can generate those outcomes in democratic and sustainable ways? And how can public policy at multiple scales, and then ultimately, more importantly, the politics sustaining that, how can we then intervene? How can we then intervene to support the scaling up of democratic forms of enterprise and democratise capital, capital at scale? So I think, realistic, you know, you're not going to... You know, the public limited company, the sort of PLC, is not going anywhere, but there are lots of steps you can take to substantially broaden up ownership, substantially change the function, the purpose of PLC, so it's much more equitable, um, and sustainable by design. But I think alongside democracy, democratizing capital at scale, reshaping the fiduciary duties around investors, around institutional investors, around the arts of how our pensions operate. I think you also want a much, much more aggressive effort to expand alternative models of ownership, from place and ground based sort of areas upwards and i think there's already those models already exist the challenges in putting rocket boosters under them sustainable non-carbon emitting rocket boosters but you know what i mean
1: <laughs> and if we're thinking about challenges that it's going to face if um so when McDonald announced the inclusive ownership funds um there's a lot of talk of things like capital flight and i know in your um sort of uh, um about section on the Commonwealth website you talk about rewiring finance and I'm imagining there might be some resistance there um, so so what sort of challenges do you think that sort of de- democratization of the economy is going to face um, and how do they o- how do we overcome those challenges
0: yeah I, mean, I think it's a key strategic question I mean I think a number of things I think firstly sort of getting a sense of the technical challenges right being you know being very sure of the types of new architectures of ownership, new architectures of governance that we're sort of trying to develop um, and making sure that we are, you know, any agenda for democratization is advancing sort of well-armed, forearmed with the types of technical, institutional design sort of senses worked out. And I think what sort of, to back that up and long once more substantively, getting that type of politics right, um, changing the common sense so that, you know, just like in the 80s, it was like, well, you know, there's this you know, single TELSID, which is the biggest advertising campaign, I think, at the time. This idea of like, you know, privatization is coming, everyone's just going to share, you know, get, 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 sort of get in on it, get a sort of slice of the pie. We need to sort of begin to change the common sense around actually wealth is generated in common, you know, not just by workers in the firm, but, you know, sort of unwaged labor, sort of the social commons, the natural commons, sort of the global commons. And that currently it's far too extractive, it's unequal, it's hierarchical. Actually, the common sense is we create that wealth together. We should hold and share that wealth in common towards more purposeful and flourishing sort of lives, communities, forms of freedom. So I think there's a sort of political common sense building, some sort of social power building there. You know, making sure this is an agenda sort of embedded with and driven forward by unions, social movements. You know, a whole range of new businesses that are sort of crying out for forms of enterprise that are not just about extraction but around. Generation around purpose, around sort of value creation that's equitable and sustainable. And then I do think, yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, clearly, I mean, I think the analogy there's a great uh, book out by Christine Berry, who's a brilliant um, sort of writer and thinker on a lot of these questions, and Joe Guinan, who's also great on this called of uh, People Get Ready. And one of the analogies they draw is um, the Ridley Plan, which was developed um, by some of Margaret Thatcher's advisors. I think before they came to power, which laid down quite concrete strategic steps, the sort of pathways forward towards the sort of type of institutional economic turn that um, happened during the 1980s. So you know, it, what happened was not that they went in and said, right, day one, day one there'll be a confrontation with organised labour as it sort of, you know, was epitomised by the sort of labour sort of, fight the fight over the sort of, miners' strike, a sort of very clear attempt to break the power of organised labour. So it wasn't that, they sort of planned up, they build up coal reserves, et cetera, et cetera. So it was like a game of chess, moving pieces. And what, how's that analogous? Well, it's that you know, building the democratic economy will not happen overnight, but I think you can intervene at certain points. So you can begin by reshaping the institutional sort of duties you impose on institutional investors, asset managers, whatever it might be, so that they're bound into certain rules. You know, they can't invest in carbon heavy industries. They can't invest in anti-labour sort of firms, et cetera, et cetera. You begin to change, you know, you build pools of pro-democratic ownerships of pools of capital that are under democratic control by changing pension rules, for example, by making sure workers and communities sort of help sort of controls sort of the wealth that is ultimately like their labor in their labor income foregone and turned into capital and pensions. You sort of scale up things like public investment banks, you know, at scale that can then invest in the democratic economy and sustain it. And you sort have to strike a balance between bold, ambitious sort of st- structural reform and recognizing, the, you know, the UK's you know, you know, point you know, in the global, global economy and not being sort of, you know, then cowed into sort of saying, okay, well, it's our academic model and we can't change it, but actually, you know, saying, okay, well, let's think deeply about the sort of structural shifts we need. And that's, I think, you know, something I can't speak for the Labor Party at all on this, but like clearly you'd imagine one of the designs, that think, inclusive ownership fund they adopted around sort of, the rate of dilution that the companies would be required to issue Um, and this idea that some company, for those who don't know it, the ownership fund idea is that company, large companies would be required to establish an ownership fund and companies would be required to issue a share of of overall sort of share equity into this giving control and income rights over time to that fund, which is democratically controlled on behalf of the workforce, elected by the workforce.
1: So I think that the rate of
0: dilution that's currently Uh, or is the labour plan, seems to me set at a sort of sensible rate, which is both giving meaningful control and income rights to workers over time, but not in a way that would trigger any of the sort of risks that you just mentioned. And I think ultimately, you know, so people are, you know, we don't really have much choice. We actually, you know, we're facing a planetary crisis that is sort of accelerating. So we do need to structurally and deeply rethink, reshape how our economy operates, starting with finance in many ways. And therefore we need to actually be sort of pragmatic, but also sort of resolutely very strategic and like trying to advance the democratic economy agenda. That's quite a long answer. (laughs) It's a a really important question, I think. And I think one that like, frankly, needs to be like teased out by people across, you know, across the progressive landscape, you know, across all parties and none, you know, from,
1: you know, enterprise
0: to sort of, you know, union movement to whoever it would be think that this really is an important question.
1: No, I, that was a great answer. Um, in terms of just going back to inclusive uh, ownership funds, so the McDonald ownership fund plan, there was a limit on the dividend paid out in that, which I believe was five hundred pounds. But correct me if I'm wrong. Um, was there? A, why? Why was that in there? Is that something that um, you think was set at the right level? What What was going on with that that figure? So
0: the rationale for the figure. Is that you can have ownership at different levels. So you can have through a social wealth fund, in which a national um, or some regional, whatever it might be, business, a wealth fund owns wealth on behalf of everyone, and then everyone gets an equal stake, equal claim. Or you can have firm-based ownership, which gives you much more direct forms of control. People are sort of directly attached to where they work, have a direct sense of you know social power through their collective ownership stake, through their sort of common property. Um, but the problem there is obviously like you know, the profits and wealth generated, even though that wealth is obviously in many ways generated by social, socially generated wealth through investment in technologies and infrastructure, et cetera. But the wealth and the profits generated by a firm like, you know, DeepMind or Google or whoever it might be, relative to say Tesco's, where you have. Um, you know very low margins, uh high levels of employees, etc. means that actually some of these like very hot profitable firms would get much more in terms of dividend payouts from an inclusive ownership fund relative to workers in sectors like retail and transport, which tend to have lower levels of profitability. And so I think labor's cap um what I know you can debate how you do this, but I think it's quite a sensible way of saying absolutely give people sort of a share in the success that they collectively generate, give people a sort of, you know, it's not going to change the world. Also, £500 is actually a reasonable sum of money for quite a lot of people, particularly when wages have been sort of, you know, performing how they have the last decade. While at the same time, if you put that cap in, then you don't get this inequality between firms. So you don't get the people, you know, ownership funds, meaning workers at Google get, you know, £5,000, and workers at Tesco's get £400. So it's an attempt to try and reshape ownership, reshape voice and power and the distribution of wealth and income within the firm as a complement to many other reforms that need to be done while actually making sure that some of the potential dynamics of inequality that could result from just pure, unrestricted firm-level ownership are ameliorated. And instead, um, I think Labour's plan is everything above £500 would flow to the Treasury. So you would have, in some ways, like, the social claim on wealth that's created. So everyone would have a claim on that wealth through the sort of cap above the five hundred pounds dividend flowing to the Treasury. Now I think there's some debate to be had around how you know, is it a straight cap? Is that the best way? Should it flow to a social wealth fund? Um, you know, sort of should it be a thousand pounds? Should the sort of ten percent cap on in terms of the ownership stake be higher? Should it go faster? I think there's lots of things to debate. Um and you know it's you know it's an important it's a Big institutions mentioned, so there's lots of things to debate and technical details but I think um, sort of the basic premise of the CAP seems to me as sort of or something equivalent to a sort of CAP uh, whether it's gradiated or whatever it might be seems a reasonable um, a reasonable intervention in terms of the policy debate and I think that that you know it clearly emerged out of the fact that you don't want this policy to sort of increase inequality you want it to be aware of a way of down inequality.
1: So I saw this argument um, sort of expressed about sort of uh in general and so I'm going to play devil's advocate slightly here and put it to you. So it was essentially the Oscar Wilde quote, right, that the problem with socialism is too many meetings and they said the problem with bonomics is there'll be too many meetings, talking about the democratisation of um, work. Um, do you think that is a legitimate complaint? Do you think that's a legitimate fear? Or do you think, or, or I guess more generally, to put the question another way, how do we uh, encourage um, workers? How do we encourage people to really get behind this sort of agenda and then uh, really take control of their own uh, workplaces? Um, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, that's a good question. So I think the first point is, I think most people don't like meetings because there's no tension in it. There's no sense of collective power or decision-making. Most of it is hierarchical meetings in which, you know, you don't really speak, you don't really have voice, you don't have a say in it. And so, you know, of course meetings are a bit shit because under the, like, neoliberalism, et cetera, they suppress the forms of democratic debate, you know, uh, a sense of possibility. It's very much managerialist. It's hierarchical often. Not always, obviously, like, you know, that's a sweeping statement, but, you know, I think you'd like to think in a more democratic economy, you know, for example in copters where there's decisions, you know, there's collective decisions around how things are allocated, the distribution of the surplus, you know, what new product lines, what new services should be developed. You know, you do see this sense of you know meetings being an exciting space of conversation. That said, I think it's, you know it is true. I think that you know in the you know a democratised economy is not you don't want to just feel like well in the you know all it is is meetings, even if those meetings are very different in their texture in their sort of Potentials that they open up. And I think, obviously, you know, one of the arguments for sort of alternative models of ownership is exactly that it reduces the bureaucracy. That, you know, one of the great sort of like, myths of, you know, some of the sort of claims around of, well, you know, why we should just, like have a very sort of monocultural form of bunch, because well, you know, it's, it's just so efficient I and mean, it sort of cuts out the bureaucracy. Whereas, of course, in, certainly in many privatised utilities, you simply have swapped one overly centralised bureaucracy in the public sector. For one, overly privatized, bureau- over- sorry, overly centralized bureaucracy, in the private sector, and you know, if anyone has sat on long calls to Vodafone or you know any of these like, just, like the mindless hoops that the private sector can generate, know that you know these these forms of providing goods and services un- organized in certain ways can be you know mind-numbingly, deliberately, crushingly so boring. Um, whereas you know in some ways what we want is a democratic forms of ownership. In certain sectors, that it's public and democratic, but in some ways, just sort of takes the burden off and makes you you don't have to think about it in the same way that you do under current systems. So an analogy would be like you know you know obviously like people are stressed about health et etc. But you know if you look at America, well, you know compared to NHS, there's many votes in NHS versus the US. But one of the things I always am struck by when you sort of hear something is like incredible. I like. You know, deeply dehumanising forms of bureaucracy that the American healthcare system generates. So, you know, these, you've got to fill out twenty-seven forms to get, you know, a sort of paracetamol like from the so your private healthcare insurance or whatever. Is that actually that you know, the, an NHS is much more sort of democratic, or at least you know, much more enjoyable as through its alternative form of democratic ownership and like its publicly controlled, its mandated set, democratic etc. So I actually think like on the meetings thing, one the meetings I think would be potentially different. I think some forms of democratic ownership are exactly to try and get rid of the sort of bureaucracy, the stultifying sort of like, sense like, oh God, this is so frustrating that you get with some sort of private sector provision.
1: And then third, you know,
0: I do think ultimately, yeah, you, I mean, I think there's something to that, that, you know, you don't want this to just be endless meetings, but you do want to nonetheless give people a stake and a say, because there is a reason why sort of the phrase, take back control has such a grip on our politics is because most people feel, and that's because most people are sort of, you know, they're not wrong, but they don't have enough stake and in say and in the voice of work, and they don't have enough sort of control over their sort of household sort of finances, or sort of their personal finances is a much better way of saying that. They don't have, you know, sort of enough you know, dignity and sort of autonomy. Um, and obviously, the, you know, democratic ownership is not the only, by any means, way to sort of get that. Um, you know, obviously, you know, in workplaces, an obviously to be, you know, an extension of collective bargaining, and new forms of sort of. And sort of trade you know, unions for of extension of, sort of their activities and range, but these sort of shifting how pr- private power organizes the economy in terms of how ownership and control is currently shaped towards much more sort of pluralistic ecology of control rooted in new models of ownership, I think ultimately could address some of those questions. But you know, I think it's a valid thing, and I think any of the sort of design iterations out of these models would have
1: to be attended to those type of concern. And to sort of uh, zoom out a moment from uh, alternative models of ownership specifically, but at the moment it seems like a really particularly exciting time in terms of um, the sort of left policy space that appears to have opened up and particularly with regards to a sort of transatlantic partnership um, at the moment. And uh, so how do you see that developing over the next few years? Um, what does... Why, why is that partnership uh, formed and, and and what does it offer for both uh, the U.K. and the U.S.?
0: So the first thing is, I think there definitely is a new and exciting sense of synchronicity in our politics. You know, you can look to things like the Sunrise Movement, you know, sort of the the vision and political courage of AOC and others around rounds sort of, you know, centering the Green New Deal, which has obviously now flowed into the U.K. in really exciting ways. Um, so there's obviously the synchronicity and a shared rhythm, um, partly because we're not like the US in terms of the scale of inequality. Um, but we are certainly like, you know, we are not like mainstream Europe clearly in many ways, but one of those is in terms of, sort of our economies in some ways, many of the challenges facing us in the UK, in some ways are sort, of, are sort of watered down in some ways, reflection of the challenges facing the US not entirely. But so I think sort of that's one of the why there's the synchronicity. I think the second thing is like clearly like you know, we're quite late to the party. I think it's important when we talk about the transatlantic left to recognise there have been lots, you know, lots and lots of other forms of progressive movements um, that have been organising against the, you know neoliberalism about sort of colonial and extractive sort of ways that the global economy has been encoded into everyday life, and you know have been trying to build up alternative futures in the here and now. Um, that, I think, is really important to sort of stress and recognise and learn from, even when even while we sort of celebrate the fact that it does seem to be more energy, intellectual excitement, you know, participation, movement building on both sides, the Atlantic, so, but I, think, so I think it's a mix of, you know, better late than never, certainly, I think it's a mix of shared commonalities in terms of some of our political moments, our political rhythms, um, and sort of broader sort of political economy questions. I think, you know... Having the same language <laughs> means that, you know, Twitter jokes sort of fly more easily between various movements, et cetera, et cetera. Doing that, you know, can't be discounted to some degree. I think it's also partly because, you know, you, the European left, you know, excluding the UK for a moment, like, you know, it's obviously much more interesting. It's not just like a sort of flat landscape. There are lots of interesting movements, you know, what's happening in sort of Barcelona, sort of the sort of, Portuguese government, sort of, some of the things in like urbanism in, in the Netherlands, et etc. Et some of the sort of things in Scandinavia, um, although of Denmark and migration is probably, you know, very problematic, but, um, you know, nonetheless, when you look across here, most of, at least the sort of traditional sense of areas, it's like on the left, um, are Know, on its knees in various forms, in terms of its electoral reach, in terms of its institutional approaches, in terms of its policy ideas, in terms of its sort of intellectual hinterland. Whereas the things the US um, and the UK have, you know, for good rules, you yeah, know, hopefully be good, like hit upon this moment where there does seem to be a lot of energy, a lot of fizzing over of ideas, um, and it does seem to be that's where the sort of institutional design and sense of future building is happening, um, and. We'll see how we can begin to deepen that and extend it and sort of ultimately embed it in terms of actual changes in sort of places and lived experience really. <laughs> because that's really yeah, that's actually the purpose, not not just sort of Twitter memes or whatever.
1: Earlier we asked for your questions for Matt. Um we got one in from Stephen Harper or at Stephen A. Harper on Twitter, former podcast guest. Um he asks about alternatives to leaseholds for blocks of flats. Uh, thinking about housing co-ops etc uh with more investigation on practicalities so um i guess he's he's uh, interested in um the way in which um ownership can work in the housing sector so uh do you have any thoughts on that
0: yeah it's a really good question and um, so we've got six areas of like focus um so democratizing business and sort of enterprise transforming finance Sort of reshaping and democratizing sort of social commons, the natural commons, data uh, digital technology. I think so. That might be five. I hope that's five. But anyway, <laughs> just, sort of, that's just up. the sixth one is sort of land and housing and their ownership and how existing structures sort of underpin a lot of the problems in our housing sort of economy. Whether it's of um, you know sort of obviously like ridiculous unlevelled unaffordability, but also quality. Um, you know and then also sorts of bad housing use bad density in certain places, etc, cetera, etc cetera. And then obviously, you know some of the environmental footprints of um, housing is obviously a key challenge in terms of getting to um, a deep commerce economy as quickly as we can so in terms of the specifics yeah, The other the UK is unusual in terms of it's sort of slightly strange these old freeholds sort of Separation and I think like investigating the hands sort of getting into the weeds of a sort of legal alternative legal structure um, that could begin to sort of uh, think about that in different ways. We've just put out a public commons partnership paper by Keir Milburn and Bertie Russell, mm-hmm.
1: and
0: what that argues for is a new way of, sort of commoning shared resources, whether it's land, whether it's housing, a whole variety of things um, that could actually basically like de and take into sort of communal forms of management of ownership, things like housing. So that'd be one practical example. I think clearly, you know. Putting investment and institutional and legislative support behind things like cooperative housing, things like um, you know, community land trusts, reversing some of the sort of reforms of housing associations and giving them sort of proper head of seam again. And then obviously, most obviously, you know, an extension in the right and capacity and resources that councils have to design beautiful, affordable, sort of renting social housing. I mean, that sort of seems to be the obvious. Um, key institutional players of democratic councils and sort of, you know, at the mezzanine level, city regions increasingly, planning, designing, and delivering at scale sort of well-designed, beautiful built environments, you know, sustainable, sort of zero-carbon housing that, you know, we all deserve to live in.
1: Excellent. We also had another question from uh, at Matt Sumption on Twitter. Relating to Stanley Creasy's intervention on ITV, how should party manifestos be improved? more detailed in terms of policy and implementation, more expressions of values, under-promising and over-delivering, this is a long question, Matt, or bold, <laughs> sweeping claims setting out the vision without many specifics? I'm not sure I'm aware of what Stella Creasy's intervention on ITV was, but um, I guess the question's more about um, what, what, how should party manifestos be improved? So, so I think um,
0: I'm trying to sort do... of Radically cut Cut down my Twitter use, Uh, but unfortunately I didn't see this uh, intervention, which I think she said on ITV that um, one of the things she would do potentially is kind of like abolish the manifesto in its current form and have instead like five broad visions and then take out the sort of clear Point 217, we will do X, I think, and sort of take that out. Uh, I think that is a Relatively fair representation of um, what Stella said, and in terms of it, whether we well, that, that idea, which then sort of the question kind of should we okay, that vision or should it be more about details. I mean, my sense is that actually, sort of, you know, it's sort of imperfect. But I do think sort of a manifest manifestos are typically often like you know the majority of manifesto pledges are delivered upon. I think it does create a sort of document of you know, covenant, if you want to call it that, which that is a bit of the top, but, you know, it, it creates a democratic sort of sense of trust that obviously parties can break, but sort of trust about this is our program and I, I would worry slight, I mean, I, just, I think um, one of the things that I mentioned was, uh, oh God, I think it was like, we like making a mission around, like around the visa obesity. You now, I think that's that, you know, and saying that's our mission and that's what all of government should do, and that which I, so I take the point around mission based, sort of, you know, sort of being like you know, a mission to decarbonise our economy, a mission to provide public affluence, um, for all, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I take that, but I do actually think we need, I think it's important to actually sort of say, like, specifically and programmatically, this is how we would reshape institutions, this is how we improve your lives, this is what we will seek to deliver if you vote for us. And, you know, I don't think democracy is the only way that um, you, you know, articulate and institute democracy. And I think the representative democracy, you know, is, is coming under you know, incredible strain for like lots of, you know, short-term but also deep structural reasons at the moment. Um, but I do think if you sort of like got rid of the manifesto and just went for broad brush ideas, um, I think there's still a place of saying, you know, this is what we would do. This is what we as a movement as the party um, plan to do. Otherwise, you know, it is a bit like, well, it just becomes a bit nebulous and a bit like, well, okay, so if, if it comes open to sort of people being, in some sort of sense, well, you don't satisfy everyone because people are like, well, we're voting for you for this sort of generality, and that's not the generality I assumed you are going to do. So, you know, I mean, potentially Nick Clegg might agree that that is is a bad idea and be like, well, actually, you know, but that's exactly their purpose, that so you, you can sort of hold to account. You know, when parties clearly contravene and break the sort of claims they made at an election. So, yeah, I so think that. that hopefully answers the question. I sort of, I sort of not, you know, am not entirely on the issue, but I think that that kind of hopefully said something to the issue.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much. Um, I think that's been great. We covered loads of stuff and your answers have all been fantastic. So, thank you so much it's a pleasure
0: it's a real pleasure and sort of it's yeah, great to see the social review sort of happen on the scene it's a great, great addition
1: thank you to our guest Matthew Lawrence I think that was an amazing episode So, and that was all down to his answers not my questions um, this week's episode was edited by Will uh previously of this podcast um thank you so much for stepping in for jasper um that's been really useful uh shout outs also to jasper himself because he's just uh, his film has just premiered at time of recording um it's called tales from the apocalypse and you can see the trailer on his twitter he is tweeting about it regularly so you will be able to find a link and watch it um and it should be released online before christmas um huge shout out additionally to everybody uh we met this saturday at open labor conference it was great to see so many um social review sort of adjacent people either people who had appeared on the podcast or have written for us um or just offered kind words that was all really welcome and everyone was lovely and it was fantastic to be there um music as usual is composed by kevin mcleod and is sweet of the mouth and is licensed under creative commons thank you so much for listening this week um thank you again to our guest and we'll see you again next week thanks bye